Good morning, everybody. Uh, yes, I didn't. Um, I didn't get to go to a men's retreat because uh, when they said that uh, they were going to be throwing axes, they don't let people with nine fingers throw axes. So they said you definitely need to stay home. So, and I know it's light today because there's a sporting event happening. Um, I, the football, I think that's what they call it, um, and uh, which surprised me because the real sporting event happened yesterday. Anybody know what significant sporting achievement was? Yes. Yeah, I love it. Hey, Haley. And my running buddies over here. Yes, the uh, um, Eliud Kipchoge broke the two-hour marathon barrier. That's right up there with breaking the four-minute mile barrier that Roger Bannister did. So that was a huge accomplishment. So you can know that that's where, you know, everybody get up at like one in the morning and watch it. So, no? So, and then, of course, uh, yesterday, uh, we actually ha- um, have a lot of people here, um, was the, uh, the largest cross-country meet in the state, actually in the Northwest. So, and I know a lot of people from, from here were there. So, oh, uh, yeah, right. Say, so, whoop, whoop, yeah, you're there. <laughs> I was there. Um, so, uh, anyway, we are in a, a, a series uh, through the book of Mark and, um, that we've been walking through, and today we're going to continue on that series. Today, we are in Mark uh, chapter 10, starting with verse 32. Uh, going down to, to uh, verse 45. So uh, if you have your Bible or your phone or your iPad or whatever it is that you use, um, uh, you can follow along with that. Uh, we're going to have uh, some of the, uh, the text up here on the screen behind me. Uh, so let's take a look at it. We're going to read through it first and then we'll break it down and take a look at it. So uh, Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 32, it says this. It says, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them and they were amazed and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And he said to them, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you'll be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left hand is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And even the Son of Man came not to serve, but to be served, and to give his life as a ransom for many." Let's pray before we dig into this. Lord, uh, as we open your word, we pray that you would speak to us. And we know there's so much that we can unpack from these passages uh, that teach us about how we are to be good Christ followers. And so, Lord, we just open our hearts. uh, Speak to us this morning uh, as we gather and learn from your word. In your precious name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, if it seems like, as you've been going through in the series on Mark, uh, that you've heard all this before, it's because uh, because you have. 
This is the third time that Jesus has gone through uh, explaining what's going to happen to him. So this is the third time uh, that he's uh, you know, predicting his suffering. Uh, and it, 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 some of the res- uh, disciples' responses are also very similar. So if it seems like deja vu, you're not alone because that's kind of what's going on. Now, we, we, we find the stage uh, knowing that they're on their way to Jerusalem. So right off the bat, it says they're on their way to Jerusalem, and there's a whole bunch of people. It says the disciples are amazed. Now, interestingly enough, we have no idea what they were amazed about. So scripture doesn't really tell us what their amazement was about. Just Mark records that during this time they were amazed um, and we we don't know what that's applying to or where that comes from. Uh, And we see a group of people. So we've got Jesus kind of going ahead. The disciples are are behind him and, 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 and they're amazed at something. And then the followers, there's more people following behind. It says they're afraid. Now the followers are fellow pilgrims. So this is, there's a lot of people heading to Jerusalem. So, and, and probably these are people that have been following Jesus and his disciples, listening to the teachings and all this stuff. And so everybody's heading for Jerusalem. So you've got a large group going. It's not just Jesus and the 12. There's a whole bunch of other people as well. And it says that those followers were afraid. Now, what we believe is that they were afraid because they were sensing something ominous was about to happen in Jerusalem. That just kind of, the, you know those times in your life where just something in your gut tells you, Something big is in the air. There's something ominous going on. And, and so po- perhaps that's what the disciples being amazed were, were sensing that same ominous. Um, but, but really what we know is that the, the people in that group traveling knew something was up. And so Jesus, probably, uh, you know, sensing the tone as, as well as he always did, decides I'm going to pull the 12 uh, disciples aside. We're going to have a little teaching moment. We're going to talk about this. Now, this is the third time that Jesus pulls him aside and predicts his suffering and what's going to happen. Uh, we first saw this back in Mark 8:31, uh, And if you remember that, Jesus says this is what's going to happen. And, and that's the, the famous Peter rebukes, uh, or P- Peter goes after Jesus and says that is not going to happen. And remember, Jesus' response to Peter was, get behind me, Satan. Pretty, pretty big rebuke of, of Peter at the, at the time. He says, For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Take up your cross and follow me. Whoever loses life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So remember that from back in, in chapter 8. That was the first time Jesus told him to death. And Peter got rebuked pretty hard as a result of that. Then a little bit later, and we see this in, in Mark 9.31, uh, Jesus brings it up again. This is what's going to happen. Uh, and he speaks of his death and the suffering that's going to happen. Um, and so at that time, in 931, the second time Jesus says it, the disciples didn't understand it. And it, and it says the disciples didn't understand and they were afraid to ask him. And probably disciples are thinking the last time Peter brought up this, this whole topic, that didn't go so well for Peter. So, but nope, all right, I'm just going to. Not, not going there. Okay, so they, they kind of didn't understand, but they didn't want to talk to him about it, um, probably to avoid that rebuke. But then in that time, they began arguing who was going to be greatest in the kingdom. And so we saw that the disciples are like, you know, who's, 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 uh, who's going to be greatest? And Jesus asked them, what are you guys discussing? And they're like, at first, like, oh, we don't want to tell you. Um, and then, uh, but Jesus knows what's going on. And Jesus at that time, he says this, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. So that was Jesus' teaching after his second time of saying uh, what's going to happen for his suffering and his death. So here we are at the third time. We know they're on their way to Jerusalem. So it's coming up. 
Uh, and this one is very detailed. It's different than the other two because this one's very detailed. He goes step by step. He talks about be turned over, uh, going to be spit on, mocked, flogged, and then be put to death, but will rise three days later. Now, in Mark, it doesn't record the disciples' response to that. But if you jump over to Luke, in, in Luke uh, uh, chapter 18, verse 34, uh, Luke is describing this exact same incident, but Luke adds the following. Pretty short and sweet. Luke just adds, the disciples didn't understand. So we know that for the third time, the disciples are like, uh, I don't get it. Now, lest we think that the disciples were that dense and not able to get it, remember what Jesus is talking about is mind-blowing. I mean, they just don't even have a category to, to put this in. So it's understandable. You know, we, we get to go to the end of the book and see how it all turned out and all that stuff. And so they're right in it. You have to put yourself right in what they're going through at this exact moment in time without reading ahead. And so right after this, so the disciples, okay, Jesus is talking about all is going to happen. And immediately after this, two of the disciples, James and John, come up to Jesus. And they've got a big question to ask Jesus. Now, I love how they start it. They, they start it with saying, Jesus, will you give us anything that we ask? Talk about a preposterous carte blanche way. And I know when my kids were little, they used to always try and pull that. Hey, can we ask you something and the answer be yes? Really? All right, this is, this is going to be good. What, what's, what's your question? Okay. And almost never was the answer yes. Okay. Uh, and so uh, it, it's the idea of they're just going to blurt right out. We want you to promise before we even ask you the question that you're going to give us what, whatever we ask. Um, and, 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 you know, Jesus, uh, being smart, doesn't, doesn't fall for it. But we have to put ourselves in, why would James and John be that bold to, to say that? Why would, they, why would he be that bold uh, to jump into that? Well, first of all, um, when we break down that question, we want to sit at your left and your right hand. They're, they're really looking for a, a, a place of glory. And we have to think about where they're at. First of all, James and John fully believe that Jesus is the Messiah. We see that because they're not questioning, is Jesus or is this going to happen? It's like, no, we get that this is going to happen. And where does that firm belief stem from? Well, back in chapter 9, verse 1, remember, James and John were with Jesus during the transfiguration on the mountain. So they saw Jesus in all of his glory and with Moses showing up and Elijah and all this stuff. And they're like, whoa, we get it. I mean, I mean, how do you how do you come away from that experience and, and seeing that without being changed and going, OK, yes. Jesus, we get it. You are the Messiah. No question. We just want to be with you on your left and your right. Now, some of what the disciples back then were thinking is that when Jesus got to Jerusalem, he was going to set up this kingdom right there. Because a lot of the zealots and a lot of the people back then, what they really believed was that the coming Messiah would set up their rule on earth, I mean, like right then and there. So they really picture the Messiah as almost being like this warrior figure that was going to overthrow the Roman Empire and life would be great. Um, I don't know about you. I, I, one of the stories I love is the Lord of the Rings trilogies. Um, and if you've ever seen the, um, 
uh, the movies by Peter Jackson that came out, you know, some years ago, uh, a lot of the disciples and people really believed that the Messiah was going to be like the character Aragorn in that in those movies, who you know walked around with a big huge sword and was always you know slashing down all the evil uh, you know forces and all this stuff. And the end of the movie, there's the big epic battle scene and it's for Frodo and they go running into the the, the whole you know bad enemy people and the orcs and all that stuff and defeat him. And the end of the movie is, of course, Aragorn getting his big crown and the, all the people are there and there's, you know, flower petals floating through the air. And it's a spectacular scene at the end of the movie of Aragorn becoming king, hence the name of the last book, Return of the King. And I think the disciples thought that's what was going to happen. It was going to be arrive at Israel the Messiah is revealed for who he really is, kicks all the Romans out, becomes king, and James and John wanted to make sure that they were on the left and the right, just like in Lord of the Rings, where all of Aragorn's friends were hanging out with him in front of all the people, and that's why they wanted that spot of prominence. They believed that ambition would get them the holiness and the honor that they had to reach out and grab it, that they had to, to push to grab it. I want to ask you, is our prayers really that different? How often do we come before Jesus with our prayers and we say, Jesus, I want you to do this for me. I, I got this prayer request and I, I, yeah, I really expect you to do it and you've got till tomorrow morning to get it done. I know I, I, know I do that sometimes. I, I pray that way sometimes until I realize I don't, think that the Lord likes that because I know I don't like it when my kids pull that on me. Uh, but do we oftentimes find ourselves responding just like James and John did? Asking for things that are just way out there. And are we willing to receive the Jesus saying, uh, hold up a little bit. And this is what Jesus responds to him. When they ask their big question, notice what Jesus responds. He, he follows it up as Jesus does in so many times. He says, give me your question. Well, we want to sit at your left and right. Okay, let me ask you a question. I love when he does that. And this is the question Jesus asked him. He says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I'm about to be baptized? What Jesus is saying is, are you willing to go through what I'm about to go through? And James and John answer, of course we are. Yes, we're, we're ready. We're able. Bring it on. We got this. Well, let's take a look at this. What's the cup that he's talking about? If you go to Psalm 75, 8, there's some, there's some uh, allusions to this cup that Jesus was referring to back in the Old Testament. Psalm 75, 8, it says this. It says, And the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out, and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. What that, what that picture is, is this picture is this cup is the wrath of God. This, this foaming wine that's in it is God's wrath. And it says the wicked will be drinking down that, that wrath, down to the very dregs. If, 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 if you've ever had a cup of coffee out of the, you know, the air pots and you get all the grounds in the bottom of it, and you take a big swig with, the, with the, those last of the, the coffee cup and all you get is grounds, that's really what they're talking about, is, is that sludge that's in the bottom of a cup. Isaiah 51:17 has the, 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 the same thing. It says, Awake, awake, rise up, Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, and you have drained to its dregs the goblet that makes people stagger. So what Jesus is talking about is, I'm about to take the drink from this cup, and it's God's wrath. 
And the baptism he's referring to is death. Remember, baptism is a, is a, a symbol of dying and resurrecting with Christ. And so the baptism he's talking to is like, this is, this is, I mean, death is on the line. Are you willing to go through that with me? Remember that even Jesus, if we look a little bit forward in Mark, in Mark 14, 36, remember when Jesus was praying in Gethsemane and he asks, he says this, he says, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. So even Jesus, right before the troops swarm in and arrest him and start everything in process that he just got done telling the disciples was going to happen, he prays to God, take this cup from me. And that's the cup he's talking about. That cup of wrath is what he's talking about. Interestingly enough, by the way, in that same passage in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, he is, uh, 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 the troops swarm in to capture Jesus. And Jesus responds to the troops and he says this. He says, am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts and you did not arrest me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Listen to this next passage. Then everyone deserted him and fled. And who was in that Everyone. James and John. So as, as, as much as they're ready to say, yeah, bring it on. I, I, we're ready to drink that cup. Yep, we got this. We're, we're the ones. There can be any left and your right. Jesus knew when it came down to it that they would flee, and they did. Well, meanwhile, the other disciples are jealous. Despite the previous rebuke back from chapter 9, because uh, they got rebuked back then for talking about how, you know, who gets to be greatest, but now they're ticked off at James and John for, for, you know, for pulling this, uh, who gets to sit at your right hand. Um, now remember, back the last time, Jesus followed up with a, if you want to be first, you need to be last. And kind of tried getting that in place. Um, and, and it says that the disciples were indignant. Now I had to look up indignant. Just a simple person. I see that word. I'm like, I think I know what it means, but let's get out of dictionary. So, and I love the dictionary of this. It says, uh, feeling, it says indignant. Feeling or showing anger or annoyance at what is perceived as unfair treatment. So the other disciples are like, really? You guys are, are trying to broker yourself to be in a, a position of, of greatness with Jesus and leave us behind? Are, are we not important? Are we, we not been doing all the stuff like you guys are? So they really become indignant to the true meaning of that word. And they're ticked off. And so Jesus uses this moment, teaching time, everybody grab a seat. And here's what he says to him. He says, servanthood, not assertiveness, is the way to the kingdom. That if you really want to get there, you need to be a servant. Now, what does being a servant look like? Well, this is something that is... Um, very real for me uh, because uh, uh, some, of you, uh, some of you know, some of you may not know. So my day job, uh, I, I don't work here at the church. Uh, my day job is as a firefighter. So I work out there as a firefighter and uh, been a paramedic. And uh, paramedics and firefighters and police officers, what do they call us? We are public servants. Our job is to serve the public. Uh, so I get that. Now, when I went through um, uh, paramedic training a, a very long time ago, uh, the, the training was very unique 
because at the time, the guy who was in charge of it, uh, uh, Dr. Michael Kopis, his whole passion was if you're going to be a public servant, you're going to be a public servant and you're going to learn what that's like. So what they did uh, to, to teach us how to be paramedics is they took us into Harborview Hospital and they handed us a mop and a bucket and they said, your job is to clean up everything that hits the floor, the walls, the ceiling, whatever it hits, your job is to clean that up. Like for a year. Have fun. Okay? Kind of like the Karate Kid movie. Remember Karate Kid? The whole, like he wants to become a karate master, but the, the, his, uh, his instructor teaches him how to like sand the floor, paint the fence, and wash the car and all that stuff. And he doesn't realize he's learning how to be a karate master doing those things. Um, it's much the same way with us. Um, and so it can get, it can get kind of tedious uh, to be, you know, uh, cleaning up all this stuff day in and day out at Harborview. And you're thinking, I signed up to like, you know, run through the streets and lights and sirens and be cool and all that stuff. And here I am mopping up stuff. I, I don't get it. Uh, so we play games. Uh, uh, my favorite game we would play at Harborview uh, while we were doing this was uh, we called it Name the Secretion. Remember that, Mike? So Mike's been through our paramedic training before, so name the secretion. It's an awesome game. What do you think that is, and where did it come from? Dr. Copas had a statement that he drilled into us while we're mopping up all sorts of delightful things. And, and his statement was, you need to treat everybody like a bank president. Now, Dr. Copas came out of the uh, uh, 1950s, you know, you know, kind of 50s and 60s and all that stuff. Uh, there actually is a book about Harborview and, and Dr. Copas. Um, it's called uh, The House of Hope and Fear, uh, A Day in the Life of a... Um, uh, a Life in the Big City Hospital by Audrey Young, and we always joke, those of us that, that know Dr. Copas, that hope is everything you think it is. I go to a b- big city hospital, I hope everything turns out, and the fear is because everybody's afraid of Dr. Copas, because he's just, that, that's the way it is. Um, but uh, there's a book about this, and, and, and Dr. Copas, you know, his teachings are treat everyone like a bank president. Now, in the 1950s, bank presidents were at the top. They had the most respect in their communities. They were the, the, the highest. They were the elite. I mean, everything is, you know, bank president. Now we would say, you know, treat everyone like a, a, a CEO or treat everybody like the Queen of England or treat everybody, you know. So that's what Dr. Copas' statement was, was you need to treat everybody like a bank president. Now, what's he implying? Well, see, Harborview is a public hospital. So although it's a level one trauma center that brings in trauma from all over Washington, Idaho, Montana, and Alaska... Yes, that's the one hospital for all those states, which means they have to fly a lot of people in from airplanes and helicopters to get them there. It's also a public hospital, so it takes care of probably well over 90% of the homeless, the drug addicts, and the prostitutes. And you've probably seen on the news, Seattle's got a lot of those lately. What Dr. Copas instilled in us is it doesn't matter who rolls through that door or what stature in life they are. If they are a bank president or they're a homeless drug addict, you treat them the same, with respect, with dignity, and if you were ever caught disrespecting anybody, you were done. Like your career was over. And that's why everybody was so afraid of the guy, because that happened. So you treat everybody with absolute respect. And as firefighters and paramedics and police, we're often called to deal with the worst situations, but we have to do that with compassion 
and caring and respect for those involved. Now, this is very hard. Doesn't come easy. That's why Dr. Copas was brilliant in making that part of our, our, our treatment. So we're, not, we're only just mopping up floors. If there's a homeless person and they're covered in all those delightful secretions and who knows whatever bugs and things that are crawling on them, our job is to get them out of their crusted clothes and clean them up. And we have to do that just like that's our own mother or father that we're taking care of uh, and, and show that respect and kindness to those people. For many, many years, I was in charge of the the chaplain group for the fire department. So chaplains are a group of people. uh, Many of them are are, are pastors that uh, respond with us typically to death scenes. So somebody dies and they have to come and they're going to comfort the families and do all that stuff. And the hardest thing is to try and recruit new chaplains. And here's why. Because I bring people in. uh, And again, many of these people are, are, are pastors. And I say, okay, here's your job. Let me paint a picture for you. You're going to go in at about one o'clock in the morning to a house that is a combination drug lab hoarder house. And you're going to go in there and the person you have to comfort is a meth addicted prostitute whose boyfriend has just died. The boyfriend beat her pretty much every day for who knows how long. And your job is to hug and comfort that prostitute. And that's about as far as I get until they're like, oh, I don't think this job is for me. I, I thought I was just going to like, you know, help people who like, you know, clean people that were in grief. No, you have to hug that prostitute the same way you would hug a young mom who just lost their baby to SIDS. That's what you have to do. And they say, I, 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 I can't. It's not for me. And I always tell them, I said, you know, thank you for your honesty. Because you're right, this job is not for everybody. Thank you so much for your honesty. And I would encourage you to go look at, you know, Mark 10:44. This says we're to serve all people. See, that's what it means to to serve people. And by the way, Pastor Steve, senior pastor here, he he's been my pastor for 40 years. That makes him very old. <clears throat> and uh Steve demonstrates this time and time again. And I'm not, I'm not implying that you know, all pastors are unwilling to get their hands dirty. Many, many of them are. They're just restricted by their time and their schedule and all that stuff. So don't, don't get me wrong on, on that. Um, so many are willing to do that. But, uh, but Steve demonstrates that for us. And that's why I continue to, to, to serve under his leadership. Because uh, he demonstrates so much and so perfectly what a servant leader looks like. You know, the Apostle Paul also summed up Jesus taking the form of a servant and, and what that looks like in Philippians. And if we look in Philippians 2, uh, verses 5 through 8, it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, th- though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant... Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And of course, the even death on a cross implying that the cross, I mean, dying is is bad enough, but the cross was a particularly torturous way to have to die Um, and, and, and the suffering that's involved in that. And that's the level with which Jesus went to be a servant to all. And that we are to pattern that as well. 
And then Jesus gets to this. He says, for even the Son of Man came not to serve, but to be, uh, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And this is one of those cornerstone uh, verses. In my, my opinion, this is right up there with John 3.16. This is a powerful, powerful verse um, with which we can really latch on to. Because this is saying so much in this one verse. Now, um, when, when Jesus says to give his life as a ransom for many, so he's using himself as example. Look, I didn't come here to be served. I didn't come here to sit on a throne and be pandered to. I came here to serve everybody. That's why I'm here. Okay? And by everybody, he means from the, high, the bank presidents all the way down to the, the, the lowest in society. That's why I came here. And to give his life as a ransom for, for, for many. Now, here's what that means. The Greek word for ransom in this passage is litron, which implies money paid for the release of a slave. That's, that's the indication in the Old Testament. Okay, so that's kind of when it's used in the Old Testament, they're, they're referring to uh, there's a slave and I am going to pay the ransom or pay the money so that slave can go free. So what I do is I get up my wallet and whatever they, we've decided that ransom is, if it's, you know, $1,000, there he goes, $1,000, the slave gets to go free. Am I really that affected? I mean, I, I'm, I'm out some money now that I paid that the slave didn't have. So, I mean, yeah, my bank account's a little bit less, but did it really affect me as the person providing that release not really so what jesus did is different because when we see that term litron meaning release or ransom uh, in the new testament what we're sensing is it's a sense that there's a redemption or a release built into that that this is not just somebody showed up took out their checkbook wrote a check person went free and then i went back about my business that somebody had to take the place of or something had to happen for that release to occur. And so it's, so it's a very unique um, thing in, when we see it, that, uh, that term, Litron, in the New Testament. So what it really means is Jesus had to take the place and have happened to him what should have happened to us, or the many. In this case, he says the many. So not only people that are alive then, but anybody else is coming back. And what he's specifically referring to is the cup of wrath that he talked about before. Someone's got to take that cup of wrath. It should go to us, but Jesus stepped in and took it instead. So what this means is that Jesus took our place so that we could be released from judgment from that cup that he spoke of and that is spoken of in the Old Testament. So when we stop and really ponder on the significance of that, that Jesus would do more than just write a check and we're free, but he would actually step in and take our place and take that cup of, of wrath that we don't know how bad it was, but when Jesus himself was saying, God, if there's any way that I don't have to take this, please take this cup from me. Then we know that's significant. So what we do is we, what I'd like to do is end with, with three questions. Just to ponder these three questions as, as you go out from here. Question number one. Do we ever place ourselves in servitude or do we look for ways to lord over and let our ego, pride, and blind ambitions get the best of us? We, we all have ego. We all have pride. So, of course, we all want to look good and, and, you know, in those senses. But do we, we really look for ways to become servants to those around us. Do we seek 
those kind of opportunities. And I know I'm, I'm not perfect at this. I mean, there's times where my ego and my pride get in the way. And I have to step back and go, okay, okay God, I, I get it. Yep. I need to step back from my own blind ambitions and not try and force my way into relationship or holiness. Number two, do we treat Jesus like a magic genie? Rub the Bible, out pops a genie, gets his three wishes. Because sometimes that's how we approach God. All right, God, here's what I want you to do today. Bring it on. Got till tomorrow morning. We're on a tight schedule here. Do we treat Jesus that way? And demand him to do whatever we ask for our prayers. Like James and John. We want you to grant whatever we ask. Right off the bat. Do we pull that with Jesus? And number three. Do we stop and realize how incredible it is that Jesus took our place and released us in a redemptive way so that we could have full relationship with God. We, we read in Romans that we all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God, and through Jesus, we can have relationship. And so do we really stop and ponder that what we see here in Mark uh, 10.45 is powerful, powerful stuff. Jesus took our place that we could live in a holy relationship with God. That is amazing. You know, serving others is, is so crystal clear to me um, because one of those chaplains that I serve with, um, many of you many even know her, her name's Christy Dunn. She was a speaker at the women's ministry. Um, wonderful, phenomenal gal. She epitomizes this servanthood to the lowest of them. Just three weeks ago, I was on a call with her. And it was a, you know, it was a house. It was very, very messy. It was, you know, basically a hoarder house and drug paraphernalia on the uh, coffee table and pictures on the wall that you don't want to know what they were because I can't describe them in church. And uh, uh, just, a, just a terrible situation. And there was a death, and, and we, we brought Christy in um, you know, to help with the family. Um, and uh, she's amazing. If you've never met Christy, she stands about this tall. She weighs about 90 pounds, it, maybe if she's soaking wet. Uh, just a tiny little thing. Big heart. She walks right in there. First thing she does. I mean, these are, these are not the cleanest, delightful people. And like she talks about, you know, this is one of those calls where I sit on the couch for a couple hours and I go home and I throw the clothes away. She walks in. She hugs people. I love these images. Christy, one of the guys in the room, he's like, 6'4", six, 6'6", six, six, huge guy. Which could be easily be like a linebacker on the Seahawks. And here's little Christy. Look, I'm so sorry for your loss. <laughs> and she sits in there and serves them. I'm here to help you. This is a difficult time. I know this is a terrible day. You've lost your loved one. I'm here to serve you for these next few hours. And she lives out what Christ is trying to demonstrate here in a very real fashion. She doesn't even have to talk to him about, hey, is Jesus, you know, do you know Jesus, whatever. She, she doesn't even have to go there because she's demonstrating just by her actions what true servanthood looks like. And that's what Jesus is calling us to do in here. For all people to be servants to all people, whether they look like us, smell like us, are as clean as us, no matter who they are, are we willing to serve them? Let's pray. Lord, as we 
see your example. We know that you've called us, and, but even more importantly, you've been the example for us of what servanthood looks like. That as you were trying to tell the disciples on that day that it's not about trying to gain status, it's not about trying to claw yourself to the top, it's about humbling ourselves, being servants, and about you know, the, 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 to be first, you've got to be last, all those things. And Lord, we know the disciples didn't really understand it at the time. Lord, we thank you that we can look forward to the book of Acts and see the disciples finally got it. Boy, did they get it. And they continued to teach. But Lord, pray that we can learn from these passages. That we would hear your words, we'd read your words, we'd, we'd see that and apply it to our lives. Lord, help us to find ways that we can serve others. Help us to find ways that we can humble ourselves. But Lord, most of all, help us to just stop in our place and reflect on the words in verse 45 that you took our place, that you paid for our ransom, not with a checkbook, but with your life, that we could have true relationship with our God and Father. Lord, we love you. Thank you for this time together of looking into your word. In your name we pray. Amen.